You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and blow. Never give up. Never surrender. What do you do for an encore? Fall asleep? By the way, ladies and gentlemen, as always, this stuff in lieu of actual entertainment. All righty then. Hello and welcome back. This is Storytime, and I am Gamer Dude. Glad to have you with us for some more stories this week. Today, we're talking movies again. You guys know I love my movies. You know I love to talk about movies. You know I love to watch movies. We're always talking about movies either in the Discord or while I'm streaming. I grew up on movies and TV, so I love talking about them. So today, I'm talking more movies. I'm going to focus on pre-1980 movies. Now, for me, pre-1980, well, that's just movies. But I know for a lot of you, those are really old movies. Because it came to my attention that we're in the year 2020, and 1980 is 40 years ago. And for a lot of you guys, that's a lifetime. For me, it's a lifetime too, but it's all part of my life, and I remember pre-1980 movies. Because I was there for them. Okay, I wasn't there for all of the pre-1980 movies I'm going to talk about today. Most of these I have seen only on television or on DVD. But I discovered them and discovered that a lot of the older movies are really good movies and great entertainment. And actually, something that I was talking about with Time Zones, one of my friends and followers on Twitch, prompted me to give a list of some of the really classic movies that I've enjoyed over the years. Because these come up in conversation and you don't remember, oh, yeah, yeah, what was that movie we were talking about? Oh, Gamer Dude said it was, and it slips your mind. So now you have a whole podcast episode with 10 classic pre-1980 movies to use as a reference. And then after I talk briefly about the movies, I'm going to give you 10 more movie tropes that we can really do without. We've done the movie tropes a few times now, and every time I talk about the movies, I always remember, oh, yeah, there's another one we can skip. So I'm going to give you another list of 10 more movie tropes that are a bit overused. And then I'm going to give you two bonus tropes that I don't think are overused. And I actually don't have a problem with them. But that'll be at the end. As for the classic movies, I'm going to give you three noir movies. You may have heard of film noir or noir films. Film noir was a genre of movie making in the 40s and the 50s, which were characterized by kind of a gritty, oppressive, pessimistic view of people focusing on dastardly deeds and colorful criminals and people whose lives have gone down the sewer and they can't quite pull them out. There's suspicion. There's intrigue. There's probably murder involved. The atmosphere is always dark. The rooms are always dingy. You've got someone who's done something wrong or is about to do something wrong and they get caught or they're about to get caught. Sometimes you might have mistaken identity. Sometimes you have somebody fooling around on their husband or their wife. Sometimes they may want their wife murdered or their girlfriend murdered. Oh, it's very dark, very dreary, very fatalistic. And because of the censorship code in Hollywood at the time, nobody could get away with anything. You didn't get away with adultery. You didn't get away with being a thief. You didn't get away with murder. Usually somebody wound up dead and quite often more than one somebody. Now, whenever I thought of film noir until recently, I always thought of Humphrey Bogart. You know, The Big Sleep, The Maltese Falcon. Those are the classic noir movies. Everybody thinks of those as the big noir films. Humphrey Bogart is a noir actor. Well, he was. He did some noir films. He did other films as well. But the specific genre of noir films had a whole lot of variety in both the actors and the stories. So I'm going to start the list today with three noir films that are classics, at least ones that I've seen. I haven't seen them all, but these are three classics that are recognized as classics 
and that I have seen, and that I think hold up, and could be very entertaining if you want to take a look for them. And they don't have anything to do with Humphrey Bogart. The first one often recognized as one of the classics of all times, as far as noir is concerned, Double Indemnity, stars Fred McMurray. Now, for me, Fred McMurray was a father in Disney movies, because he was in a lot of Disney movies back in the 60s, The Shaggy Dog, The Absent-Minded Professor. But he's the lead in Double Indemnity, and he plays an insurance salesman who teams up with a beautiful woman to murder her husband. And they do that, of course, to collect on the insurance policy. That's where Double Indemnity comes from, because she gets paid double if her husband dies in an accidental death. That's the name of the movie. That's the clause in the insurance policy. And it's a classic movie. It's really suspenseful, really well done. You can find it on DVD. You can often find it on demand. Well worth your time. The second war film for you is called The Woman in the Window. It stars Edward G. Robinson, and he's not playing a gangster. When I grew up, Edward G. Robinson was a gangster. You've heard me do this week Edward G. Robinson imitation. Yeah, see? Yeah, Muggsy, see? That's my bad Edward G. Robinson. But he wasn't always the gangster. In this one, he plays a professor. And he has a certain view on the psychological aspects of murder and when it's justified and when it's not. And he falls in love with a picture of a woman in the window. And the whole plot evolves from his obsession with this woman. I don't want to give away too much of these movies because part of the fun of watching a noir movie is to see the plot unfold and see what happens. But this has a great plot, really suspenseful, really thrilling, except for the final minute. And I'm not going to spoil the final minute, but after you watch it, you'll see, well, what was that all about? And the behind the scenes story is the director had to tack on an extra minute at the end to appease the censors. Remember what I said about the censorship? He had to make people in the censorship booths happy. So for the first 99.9% of the movie, it's an awesome movie. Then that last minute is like, huh? But still, well worth checking out. A third noir movie you can check out, Night and the City. Now this stars a guy named Richard Widmark. He was a big actor when I was a kid, but I knew him as a big character actor type, good guy, had the lead in a few movies. This is one of his earliest roles. He's a skinny little creepy kind of con man type guy. And the movie's all about him trying to settle up some kind of a wrestling empire in London. And so it's about his conflict with the mobster in charge of things in London. And then there's a relationship between him and the leading lady, Jean Tierney. And it's about Richard Widmark going toe to toe with this mobster type. Really well done. If you can get your hands on a copy of that, Night in the City is another noir movie worth your time. By the way, if you're at all interested in noir, on Turner Classic Movies, they have a show called Noir Alley. And it's hosted by a guy named Eddie Muller, who is a huge fan of noir. Now, I don't always agree with Eddie's takes on the noir films that he picks. Some of them that he puts up there are like questionable noir for my taste, but it's his show, so... But if you want some exposure to it and you have Turner Classic Movies, you can definitely check out Noir Alley. By the way, Turner Classic Movies is a great place to check out some of the movies that I'm going to talk about now. These are not noir movies. These are just pre-1980 movies. And Turner Classic Movies really does a good job of putting classic movies in front of you and available to you. Well, at least mostly available to you. The cable companies are really screwing Turner Classic Movies recently. And we're going to go off topic just a little bit here because... My cable company decided to package Turner Classic Movies with various sports and outdoors channels, which makes zero sense. Our package includes most of the channels, and at one point it included Turner Classic Movies, but in its infinite wisdom to screw the customers, the cable company decided 
Let's not make that so available. If you want the Turner Classic Movie Channel, you're going to have to buy this little sports package we put together because we're adding that channel to that package, which is insanity. But that's how monopolistic the cable companies are, and they don't care about their customers. They care about their bottom line. Okay, rant over. I recommend Turner Classic Movies because you'll find some of these movies on that channel. You can find them on other channels as well, and you can find them on Amazon. You can find them on Netflix. You might even find them on Hulu. But here are seven more classic pre-1980 movies that are well worth your time. The first one is called Twelve Angry Men. It takes place in a jury room, and it's all about a jury deliberation. Sounds exciting, right? Let me tell you, it's a really good movie. Really exciting, really interesting, some of the best acting you'll ever see in a movie. It takes place entirely in the jury room, and what it is, is about a jury holdout attempting to prevent a miscarriage of justice. It's got Henry Fonda, Lee J. Cobb, Martin Balsam, a whole bunch of familiar faces in there. As soon as you see them, you'll go, oh, I know that guy. It's really well acted, really well done, and I highly recommend it. It's one of my favorite all-time films. It's not number one or two, but boy, I could really make an argument that it's a top ten film for me. Another classic, The Time Machine. Again, the original Just like 12 Angry Men, which I just mentioned, they remade that in the 90s. I never saw the remake, and I'm recommending that you go to the original 12 Angry Men. I'm also recommending you go to the original The Time Machine. Based on an H.G. Wells story, it's about a guy who visits back in time and goes forward in time and ultimately winds up in a utopian society and finds himself disillusioned that things aren't perfect because the society is darker and a bit more dangerous than one might expect a utopian society to be. Now, the time effects are dated, the sets are dated, but the plot, it really holds up. It's a really well-done science fiction-y type movie about time travel. Another classic pre-1980 movie, Rear Window. Again, another one that's been remade. Don't watch the remake. Go to the original. Alfred Hitchcock did the original with Jimmy Stewart and Grace Kelly as the leads. And Raymond Burr is in it as well as the villain. Or is he the villain? That's part of the mystery of the movie. It's a mystery, again, primarily set in this one guy's apartment. He's got a broken leg, he's stuck in a wheelchair, and all he has to do to entertain himself is look out the rear window of his apartment. And you know, this is long before the days of TV and internet. He had no iPad, he had no cell phone, he had no computer to distract himself. All he had was looking out the rear window. And that's where the plot develops, right outside his rear window. And the suspense? It's really well done. Now, just like with a lot of Alfred Hitchcock's movies, the pacing is very, very different for this movie than we're used to in the 1990s, the 2000s, the 2010s. We like quick points. Bring on the action. Keep it going. Move it. A lot of these pre-1980 movies tend to do a slow boil. And so the suspense and the action is a little slower than we're used to. And Rear Window is no exception. But if you settle in, you take the time, you watch the movie. You listen to the dialogue, because there's some snappy dialogue in this, and you let it brew and watch the master do his work, Hitchcock does a great job with this movie. Next up, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane? This stars Betty Davis and Joan Crawford, and you may have seen the miniseries about them. I think it was on TNT, where there was a feud between the two of them. Both very strong, very interesting leading ladies in the 40s and the 50s and they're cast together in this movie, it's a really interesting, very suspenseful movie. It's about a child movie star and her adult movie star sister and what happens to them as both of their careers fade and they're forced to live together as adults. 
and there's some psycho stuff going on in there, and there's some nefarious stuff going on there, and it's a really interesting little movie. Again, the pacing is a little different, but if you settle in and commit to watching it, I think you'll enjoy it. Another pre-1980 movie to check out, the original Carrie. Yes, the one based on Stephen King's book. This is the version with Sissy Spacek in the role of Carrie. It is a really well-done adaptation of a Stephen King book, one of the best. Very true to the book, very well acted. It's been remade a couple of times, never nearly as good as the first one. And you'll see some other familiar faces in it as well, including a very young John Travolta. If you've never seen the original Carrie, make the time. Another classic, and I've mentioned this in other movie episodes, Deliverance, with Burt Reynolds in the lead. I always liked Burt Reynolds. Some people don't like Burt Reynolds or didn't like Burt Reynolds. Mrs. Gamer Dude among them. He had just too much of a smarmy touch for her taste. But for me, Burt Reynolds was cool. I didn't see Deliverance when it came out. I saw Burt's other dramatic movies like White Lightning and Gator. Those were the early two that I remember him in. But Deliverance was one that put him on the map. It's probably Burt's best dramatic role. And I think I've mentioned this before. The rumors were that he was going to get an Oscar nomination for the role until he did that infamous photo shoot for Playgirl magazine. Yeah, Burt thought it would be a good idea to pose nude in a magazine the year he was up for an Oscar. Imagine conservative Hollywood in the 1970s faced with that prospect. Needless to say, he never got the Oscar nomination. Not for that role. But the movie? It's about a bunch of suburban guys, wannabe outdoorsy types, who want to go on a canoe trip in the backcountry. And they run into some very interesting mountain folk. Hilarity does not ensue. Trust me when I tell you. There's some classic scenes in this movie, some really dramatic moments, and perhaps one of the best musical pieces ever to come out of a movie, Dueling Banjos. If you've ever heard the song Dueling Banjos... This is where it was featured. But yeah, if you have time, check out Deliverance. My final classic pre-1980 movie, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Basically, it's the King Arthur tale told with silliness and surrealism. And I readily concede parts of this movie are impossibly stupid. Parts of it, you're just going to look at and say, what the hell is wrong with Gamer Dude? Parts of it are really dumb. But parts of it are classically funny, achingly so. Classic bits in there. Bring out your dead. I have a bring out your dead t-shirt. Who would cross the bridge of death? I mean, the questions on the bridge of death. The black knight. Tis a flesh wound. The witch. What makes you think she's a witch? Oh, she turned me into a newt. And then one of the classic lines about government. Listen, strange women lying in ponds distributing swords is no basis for a system of government. One of my favorite lines. So yeah, if you just want stupid, silly fun that parts will make you laugh out loud and parts will make you groan in agony. Monty Python and the Holy Grail, well worth your time. So there's 10 classic movies for you. Now, we've got some more of my favorite, the movie tropes we love to hate. First up, it's falling an impossibly long distance and getting up and walking away. We all know that gravity is the law, except apparently in action movies. You can fall 94 stories, and as long as you land on a soft, wet sponge, you're probably going to be okay in an action movie. But seriously, how many times have we seen the explosion happen, the guy jump off the top of a building, and land in a tree branch and walk away, brushing a few leaves out of his hair? Phew! Thank God that tree was there. Or the car leaps an impossible chasm between two buildings, and lands with a bone-jarring thud on the roof of the adjoining building. But the car's fine, wheels are fine, windshield's not even cracked, everything's good. I mean, I know it's an action movie, but still, maybe just a 
touch of realism might make it a little easier to palette some of the other stuff. And speaking of the touch of realism, why is it that every time the bad guy and the good guy are fighting for the gun, the gun slides away, the good guy dies for it, and always, always, always comes up six inches short, and just as he extends his fingers, the bad guy's foot slams down on his wrist, and he can't quite get there. I mean, always. If it's not his foot, the bad guy dies on him and grabs his wrist just inches from the gun. I'm just tired of seeing that gun skitter across the floor, just out of reach, and nobody can quite get to it. If you'd used it to begin with, we wouldn't be in this mess. Another trope takes us to the future. Ah, yes, the future. Almost always a dystopian adventure, sometimes a utopian adventure, and always in muted beiges, or gray, or black. How often is that the color theme of the future? It's either beige, or gray, or black. Or some combination. It's like they took yellow and red and blue out of the spectrum in the future. I mean, think of Blade Runner, for instance. Or iRobot. Or the Adjustment Bureau. Or any of these futuristic movies. Everything's gray. Very industrial-like. Can we just introduce a color palette to the future, please? If I ever get the power to travel through time, I'm bringing a paint set. That's it. Go to Home Depot here. Make these colors. Next up, it's the Gimme a Beer trope. How often... Whether it's the hero, or the villain, or even the bit players on the side, they walk into the bar and say, Give me a beer. And the bartender gives them a beer. Try that at your local bar this weekend. See what happens. What kind would you like? We have this, this, and this on tap. And we have this, this, this in bottles. What would you like? What bar just gives you a beer when you ask for one? It's not like there's a tap that says beer on it. The give me a beer trope just makes me crazy. It's the same thing with whiskey. Nobody just gives you whiskey. You gotta pick one. The next one is for the ladies. High heels. High heels in movies are just misused. I mean, high heels are just uncomfortable anyway. But you got two tropes with the high heels on the ladies. You got the detective who's wearing high heels on the job, which is a very physical job that requires running and jumping and climbing and all kinds of things that high heels are ill-suited for. And if you've ever actually seen a woman detective, it's very rare that they're wearing stilettos on the job. I'm just saying. But the other time that high heels are misused are in the horror movies. Because you always, always, always see the woman running from the killer while wearing high heels. And of course, the high heels make her trip. And of course, the fact that she's tripped now renders her completely helpless to even get up and run barefoot. Darn those high heels. Another thing they do with women which makes me crazy, is the trophy wife. You always have the old dude and the 20-something blonde, always blonde, who's young and beautiful and socially unaware and almost always dumb. It's just so overused in the movies. I don't need to see trophy wives in the movies. Here's a twist on that trope. Make her a trophy wife, a 20-something married to a 70-something, and she's in it for the money and she knows what she's doing and she's very carefully siphoning off all of his wealth in order to create a company for herself so that she can rule the world. The old dude thinks he's got her. She's really got him. Now there's a trophy wife trope I could get behind. If you're going to do a trophy wife movie, make that the trophy wife. Make it interesting. That kind of leads me to the next one, the psycho ex-girlfriend. It's always the clean-shaven, level-headed, good-looking male protagonist who breaks up with the girl who turns psycho on him, becomes crazy stalker, hell-bent on murder, or at the very least, destroying his life. 
I don't know about you, but I don't need to see any more psycho ex-girlfriends. Besides, based on the news and the people that I know, it's usually a psycho ex-boyfriend, to be perfectly honest. Now, the last three are kind of tied together. The first one is the accidental bump. This is when the male and the female, who are supposed to be the leads, accidentally bump into each other, literally. It's in the store, it's in the coffee shop, it's on the street, it's in court. It's not that they happen to see each other, that can happen, but it's that they literally, physically bump into each other. They always make that something cute. When you bump into somebody, it's like, oh my god, I'm sorry I didn't see you there, and there's nothing cute about it. And it really doesn't happen that often. So I don't need the accidental bump. I really don't. Now, sometimes the accidental bump leads us to the soulful look. This is the eyes are the window to the soul moment. That's where they look longingly into each other's eyes. Like they can tell what the other one is thinking just by looking into their eyes. And then later in the movie, they'll say, when I looked into your eyes, I knew what was on your mind. Okay, that doesn't happen. I can look into Mrs. Gamer Dude's eyes because I've known her for years, and I know just from the flick of an eyebrow exactly what she's thinking. But that's after years of experience and training. It doesn't happen. What one guy mistakes for lust is actually loathing. The eyes may be the window to the soul, but you don't know the first time you see somebody, or the second time you see somebody, or the third time you see somebody. Eventually you learn. But that soulful moment, I'm tired of it. The other one that I'm tired of is the interrupted kiss. The guy and the girl, or the girl and the girl, or the guy and the guy who are supposed to be getting together. And there's that moment. They're alone together on the couch. All the signs are there. The moment is right. They lean in. Their lips are just about to touch. The door bursts open. The phone rings. The dog barks. Something interrupts the kiss that you know is going to happen. It's going to happen eventually. Why do you have to interrupt it? Can we just have the kiss, please? The postponing of the inevitable kiss just makes me crazy. Let him kiss, for God's sakes. Let him kiss. As I mentioned at the beginning, I have two bonus tropes for you. These are two that I don't get sick of. I was trying to come up with more, but there's not a lot of ones that I don't get sick of. They become tropes because we get sick of them. I mean, there's tropes in Christmas movies. I mean, we've just gotten done with Christmas. So, love at Christmas time, saving the holiday... Those are all tropes in Christmas movies, and I I like those, because if they're well done, it makes for a great movie. But in general, there's only a couple that I can think of. And we have to go back to the dystopian future, where they always talk about individuality is the enemy of the state. You know what? I'm not tired of seeing that one, because that's something that we have to put out there. We have to remember that being an individual is important. We don't all want to be clones beholden to a government of our rich overlords individuality is important. So I don't get tired of seeing that storyline. I think we have to remember that we are individuals. Yes, we have a lot in common. Yes, we're all human beings, but we're all individuals with our own likes and dislikes. And we don't have to conform to the way the government wants us to be. So I don't mind those storylines. I don't mind that theme as an overarching theme in a movie. The other one that I hear people complaining about is the chosen one trope, where the hero is some special being. You know what? That's why we go to the movies. We go to the movies to see The Chosen One. Luke Skywalker is The Chosen One. Clint Eastwood's Mysterious Stranger in all of those westerns is The Chosen One. Tom Cruise in Top Gun is The Chosen One. He's not saving the universe, but he's The Chosen One with a special set of skills, and we're seeing his stories. Is he a superhuman? No, he's not. Neither is Luke, neither is Clint Eastwood. None of the stars of the movies are 
superhumans. But the point of the movie is to see how this person, whether it's somebody from humble beginnings or someone from a royal family or someone from whatever walk of life they're in, how they overcome whatever obstacles are thrown in their way to achieve their goal. That's the point of the movies. So I don't ever have a problem focusing on the chosen one because that's why we go to the movies. And quite honestly, that's what I love about movies. I like to see how the chosen one is going to win. I mean, really, isn't that the point? So there's our movie discussion for today. But never fear, I have lots of movies to talk about. I've been making lists and categories, top 10 comedies before 1970, underrated action movies of the 80s, best buddy pictures of all time. Oh yeah, I love movies and I've broken down my movie fandom into all kinds of subcategories. And yes, we will continue to talk about movies because I love them so much. But that's going to do it for today's episode. I hope you have time to go check out some of these movies. Trust me, they're worth your time, and I think you'll enjoy them. Anyway, thank you so much for being here. I can't thank you enough for your support and for taking the time to listen. You guys are awesome, and I love doing these episodes for you each and every week. Thank you so much for taking the time to be here for them. Until next time, you guys take care of yourselves. And I'll see you when I see you.